Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Thank you very much for joining us. Before we get started on this week's podcast, a really exciting announcement Peter Hart's book, The Gallipoli Evacuation, is now available to pre-order on our website. That's right, pre-order the book. It'll be out in September, but get your hands on a copy early because anyone who pre-orders the book will also receive an exclusive behind-the-scenes interview with Peter Hart that includes wonderful audio from Gallipoli veterans telling their story in their own words. It's absolutely extraordinary. In many ways, it's even more exciting than the book, but the book's pretty good too. So get your hands on the book, pre-order it now on our website, and get that exclusive interview that you can download straight away, and then you'll get the book when it comes out in September. So Peter Hart's The Gallipoli Evacuation, now available on the Living History website, which is livinghistorytv.com. That website again, livinghistorytv.com. Get your hands on the book. It's going to be something really special. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History and an episode I'm really looking forward to. We're going to talk about something a little bit more modern. We're going to uh, dig a little bit uh, deeper into a subject very close to my heart, which is the war in Afghanistan and specifically Australia's involvement in that war. It's going to be a great topic and joining us to talk about it is Dr. Rhys Crawley. Rhys, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, Cheers for having me on here, Matt. Mate, I've got to start by saying that, uh, you know, historically when I've spoken to you about various things, it's a bit, it's been about scrambling around gullies in Gallipoli and logistics and all sorts of things. You've, you've taken a bit of a, uh, a, a different direction from, uh, from the great work you've done on Gallipoli in the past. Why don't you just give us a bit of an update about where the recent years have led you? Yeah, certainly. Um, I think when we first crossed paths, uh, I was still a PhD student working on the August offensive at Gallipoli. Um, so... As you know, there's not, not a lot of jobs out there for historians, so when they come along, you grab them and you run with them and, uh, and feel fortunate to keep getting paid to do the, the thing you love to do. Uh, so that saw me, after my PhD, work on the official history of the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, or ASIO. Uh, so for your foreign listeners, that's uh, Australia's version of MI5. Uh, so I worked on that for about six years and was one of the authors of a three-volume official history that we produced. Uh, from that, I moved on to another official history series looking at uh, Australian peacekeeping operations. Uh, so I was one of the co-authors on that. Um, we published a, the first, or volume one, but the last to appear uh, came out last year. And um, towards the end of the ASIO history, uh, I was appointed to write 
one of the volumes in the current official history series. Um, so it's the sixth one that Australia has undertaken. And that looks at East Timor, Iraq and Afghanistan. And I'm responsible for writing the volume on Afghanistan, uh, Australia's war in Afghanistan from 2005 to 2010. Not a small task there to take on, mate. Uh, you know, good fun, a lot of responsibility, but um, huge privilege, I, I guess, working on official histories because you get to be the first one into the records. Uh, those files aren't yet available for the public to look at, so we get a chance to try and make sense of things, I guess, uh, the first historians to do so and, and the next people to try it after the journalists. Do you feel a link to some of Australia's great uh, official historians, because we've had there's been a succession of famous names through military history who've written official histories of each of the conflicts. Do you feel a link and a responsibility to carry on that uh, that good work? Uh, yeah, partly. Um, pretty acutely aware of the official histories that have come before us. I think my PhD sort of grew out of um, being quite critical of Charles Bean and some of the gaps in his own official histories. Um, so I read them, I guess, with a fine-tooth comb. Um and we've seen how each official history series has evolved, sort of um, this idea of making sure you tell the story of what uh, Australian soldiers at a private level do, um, as well as all the way up to generals. So we attempt our history very much in, in that vein. Uh, one of the changes I think we've seen in the way official histories has been done over the past 100 years, basically, is it's become a bit more professionalised access to material has allowed us to be a bit more contextual so i've been able to provide that bigger story but you know i think i'd be speaking on behalf of all of my colleagues uh for my current for the current project there is a huge amount of responsibility on us and larger that comes down to how significant we see the official history as being in um, i guess getting a first version of public awareness down on the record that other historians are going to come along and uh, and hopefully challenge and criticise and correct uh, in the future. I think if you weren't if we weren't really prepared to be um, challenged in that way, it might be a bit of a, a tough task. But I, I personally welcome it. I think it'll be great. Uh, I'll, I'll no doubt get things wrong. Um, you know, the task is is massive, and so you have to sort of gloss over some things. And um, I think coming to that recognition, which you don't really have as a PhD student. Um, gives me a better appreciation for what some of my predecessors as official historians have done. Yeah, someone will no doubt one day do to me what I did to Charles Bean. Well, uh, I mean, I, I think that's a great attitude to have made about the, uh, the the future historians, and I tell you, you know, it's a it's a it's a big responsibility you're taking on. You mentioned um, bringing awareness to the public, and that's I think acutely important with a war like Afghanistan because. It seems to be one of those things that no one really knows about what went on. I mean, I'm sure you do, but you know, even from my own point of view, I've got lots of friends who were, who are veterans of that war. I do a lot of research about wars in general. Even I don't really feel like I've got much of a clue about what we actually did over there. Do you think that that's an accurate assessment, that the public has not a great understanding of what Australia did in Afghanistan? Yeah, I think, yeah, spot on. Defence families understand it. Uh, they still then only understand their small part and what it meant for their loved ones or for themselves who deployed, but um, I quite often, I guess, reflect back on um, some of the our understandings of the First World War. You know, my first um, love for history was obviously the Gallipoli campaign, and even with all the censorship that was in place and the time lag between reporting uh, being written up and appearing in the press, 
the, the Australian public just had a far better understanding of what was happening on a, a daily basis. You know, they, um, of course, there were details that weren't shared, um, but they tended to know big picture things about battles that were occurring on the Western Front or at Gallipoli and, you know, a three-week three week lag was, was nothing really uh, then. If we fast forward to now, to 24-hour news cycle, um, you know, the social media and, and still all of that, our understanding is, I say our, our society's understanding of the war in Afghanistan is, um, is almost nil. And I know when I started this project, um, you know, I was almost a, little, a bit embarrassed because I knew virtually nothing about Afghanistan. Uh, virtually nothing about what Australian troops had been doing in Afghanistan. I didn't know the people um, and I didn't even really know where the records would be. So, um, you know, one of the great things about the official history is we get to try and educate the public, um, you know, through our books, which is the main, the main product is a big, thick, um, six big, thick books um, across the project. Um, but through forums like this, doing podcasts, giving public lectures, talking to the Defence Force so that they're aware of what we're doing, um, talking to other government departments because the official history isn't just about the Defence Force, it's about what Australia did in Afghanistan and that's wider than just the Defence Force. You know, that's from why we went there and the reasons that government sent troops down to what, you know, private blogs experienced Um out on patrol one day or uh, in a hospital as a medic or, you know, whatever the role might have been. So pretty sort of encompassing history. Well, we're going to try in this podcast to dig a little bit deeper into it and maybe expand some people's knowledge about it. Um, I certainly appreciate that there is a lot of uh, sensitivities about this. There was a lot of special forces, a lot of stuff which is still uh, classified and, you know, won't be revealed for a while. So uh, thank you for uh, for sort of attempting to wade through this with us. Why don't let, let's do a broad overview? I mean, we all I, I think we all know about September 11 and you know the res, the the response to wanting to go into Afghanistan. Can you? I mean, it's a, also an incredibly long war. Can you? Is it possible to even paint an overview of what Australia did uh, during that war? Yeah, I'll give you what they call the Soldiers Five. I guess um, you, you're right. I'll just quickly touch on there are some things I'm I'm not going to be able to discuss on the podcast. And, and that's just uh, as a result of the fact that our history is still on uh, ongoing and, and it's classified. But I'll tell you where I can't answer things and why, so I'm more than happy to sort of do what I can. Um, you know, we, we went to Afghanistan as a result of 9-11, as you just mentioned. Um, Prime Minister John Howard was in Washington, D.C. at the time. He was about to meet President George W. Bush for the first time. Uh, so he's in D.C. when... Those planes crashed into the World Trade Center in, in New York um, and into the Pentagon, um, you know, just down the road from where the Prime Minister was saying and uh, staying, and it, it greatly affected him um, personally, uh, but also, I guess, um, recognising uh, the importance of the Australian alliance with the US, and he, he basically straight away invoked the ANZUS alliance. Um, we would go and we would help defend the US, uh, and he knew that that meant we would go to war. Um, and so that was that was the the outcome of that. We we pretty quickly, um, the government pretty quickly determined that it would send special forces in with the Americans uh, into Afghanistan to get rid of Al Qaeda. Um, direct direct result of those those terrorist attacks, uh, and we did that in two thousand and one. We sent um, uh, special air service regiment uh, soldiers into Afghanistan, and they largely did what. Um, 
traditionally the SAS had done. They spent weeks in the field doing long-range reconnaissance patrols um, and getting a feel for who was out there, what they were doing, um, and then working with their coalition partners, so mostly the US, to um, go after and, and uh, capture or kill, generally kill, um, those al-Qaeda members uh, and, and members of the Taliban government who were supporting them. Um, so that's, that's the start of that mission, and that's largely what our fault towards the end of 2001 and into 2002, and then uh, we brought them home. Um, job was done. There's no sort of concept of trying to uh, fix Afghanistan or, you know, create a democracy or any of that, certainly in an Australian perspective. It was go in, get rid of uh, al-Qaeda, and then get out of there. And so that's what we did. Uh, and we then kept sort of ones and twos of officers in Afghanistan doing um, various work with the coalition up until 2005 when things were starting to look pretty bad again in Afghanistan. So 2001-2, al-Qaeda had been chased out of Afghanistan. The Taliban had largely disappeared um, over the border into Pakistan or, or sort of melted back into the various villages from which uh, they came. But they'd started to, res- um, to, to come back into society in 2005, so this sort of resurgence of the Taliban. And the international community started looking again at Afghanistan and realising, hey, uh, the reasons we went there in 2001 sort of prevent the, this, this place being used as a, as a safe haven for terrorists. Um, it needs a bit more work. Um, and so while everyone was turning their mind back to Afghanistan and some nations had stayed there in the interim, Australia started considering what it might do. And that eventually resulted in us sending special forces back into Afghanistan in 2005 for another 12-month period. Now you had commandos there. Um, working, I guess, in a practical way, although not um, not the first time, um, but in a practical way, working uh, as a unit in a special operations task group. So you had SAS and commandos, um, and that's basically try and rid this place called Uruzgan province uh, in southern Afghanistan, sort of central southern Afghanistan, um, rid it of the Taliban and, and any... Uh, people opposing the Afghan government, which by then had been inserted. Uh, so, And that's sort of where my book kicks off is, is that 2005 decision. If we can continue to go on till the end of 2014, I'm happy to do that. Yeah, look, I think that would be worthwhile, mate. I know it's a long and complicated story, but I think it's worthwhile just so that we, as our starting point, we, um, we, we know what we did over there. Yeah, okay. So, um, again, that, that 12 months, 2005, 2006, was a special forces war. It's nearly all um, vehicle-mounted operations, so they'd go out in their vehicles uh, out into the Afghan countryside, um, out into the dashed or the desert, uh, and in the green zone, which is where um, the villages are based and where the people live. Uh, And they're basically um, trying to find out what's happening, uh, who's who, um, who the bad people are, who needs protecting, who needs helping, who needs um, to be gotten rid of, and they spent weeks um, weeks out in the field um, doing it tough, doing what they're trained to do. Um, there wasn't so much of an IED threat, so improvised explosive device threat then. So driving around wasn't, um, I mean, it was very tough, but wasn't um, as dangerous as it became later. Um, so they could spend that time out doing that work. And over time, they developed a really good picture of um, who was who in Uruzgan. Uh, not perfect, but um, certainly, uh, you know, were able to understand who they needed to go after. Uh, and in the last sort of four months of that 12-month period, um, 
it's it, it was summer in Afghanistan, which is traditionally known as the, known as the fighting season. So the Taliban um, get pretty active. Um, obviously, they're trying to win the support of locals through whichever means they can and oppose the Afghan government and the coalition in that way. Um, and Australia, with other coalition members, um, largely went on the offensive and, uh, and took the fight to them in a series of highly successful uh, operations. Uh, a number of bravery decorations uh, come out of, of those operations. And then uh, the Australian government decides uh, time's up. We've had the special forces back there for 12 months. Uh, we've got other things we want them doing, so they bring them home. Um, and in turn, we send the first of uh, what became four rotations of the reconstruction task force. And its job um, over time uh, was to help rebuild Afghanistan. So special forces had gone in there and tried to remove the threats and now it's time to sort of follow on with, um, you know, building schools, building bridges, um, fixing mosques, um, creating the kind of infrastructure that um, that a society needs to, to hopefully develop. And so that for Australia, um, this is army-focused, but the conventional army units, so engineers, um, construction engineers, uh, combat engineers um, to do this, this sort of work uh, and supported by, uh, infantry and, and cavs, cavalry, and uh, etc. for protection, so they could go and do their jobs. I guess in this kind of security bubble um, provided by a really well um, gunned up team, ready to take on, I guess, whatever came at them. And generally, they were they were so large that um, people didn't target them directly. They'd do it through indirect means. So you start to see this prevalence of IEDs appear on the roads and, and, and the like. Um, this time also coincided with the Dutch arriving uh, in in Uruzgan province. So when we had gone there in 2005, we worked with American Special Forces, so the Green Berets. Um, they had um, Operational Detachment Alpha teams spread in little pockets throughout Uruzgan province. Uh, we were um, operating in the same area. In 2006, the Dutch came in, um, the Dutch military, and they became the battle space owners for Uruzgan province. Uh, and the Australian reconstruction elements sort of plugged into that and we became a part of a Dutch task force. Um, so we sat under a Dutch umbrella and um, we, you know, they came up with sort of the broad scheme of how uh, they would attempt to improve things in Uruzgan province and we sort of plugged into that where we could. Um, and eventually um, we had special forces return and join that effort and sort of move further out from Tarankout, which is the capital of Uruzgan province, and they would try and uh, basically go after the, the um, Taliban leaders and the bomb makers and, you know, the, the genuinely um, bad guys in the area uh, and capture or kill them and create, I guess, a bit of space and a bit of security for the engineers to do their job, um, for the Australian infantry to um, do their job, which increasingly became about mentoring, so improving the skills of the Afghan National Security Forces, in particular Afghan National Army units. Uh, so that was done by living with Afghans on patrol bases dotted throughout Uruzgan province, living in these little walled compounds and going out and doing foot patrols with them every day or, you know, most days, um, into villages to show the local population that, um, you know, hey, there's a... There's an Afghan presence here. We're helping the Afghan National Army develop. 
Um, and that, you know, that came with its own challenges. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, but that became our, our predominant focus there on until um, the end of Operation Slipper, which is the Australian, uh, the code name for Australian operations um, in Afghanistan, um, which uh, we pulled out of Uruzgan in 2013 and Operation Slipper ended in, in 2014. Uh, so that's, that's it in a nutshell. Um, that's very much an army-focused view. Uh, of course, there's, there's other elements there um, supporting all of that. There's intelligence assets. There's um, Air Force assets, you know, doing logistic runs, um, doing some, some intelligence work. Um, you know, there's a whole range of, of other enablers there that, um, that aren't just Army. But uh, when we look at Afghanistan, it's predominantly a land war. You know, there's not a lot of ocean there. And, um, and in that sense, um, a large part of the burden of that war falls on the Australian Army. Uh, and then within that, uh, an even larger burden, although not numerically so, but certainly individually on on these special special forces who just did sort of members of which did rotation after rotation uh, back to Uruzgan um, to you know do the things they'd been doing since two thousand and one. Do you think, from the the information you've looked at, that the special forces did too much in Afghanistan? Uh, yeah, I'm still trying to form my views on that. I think, um, I think there's certain, certainly there would be individuals in there who, who went back too many times. Um, and certainly there will be, um, some consequences of that for their own, uh, lives and mental health and such. For the most part, the tours were, were quite short. You know, it's not like going to the First World War and you go for a number of years until you're either killed or you come home at the end of it. Um, or you know, or severely uh, incapacitated through through wounds. Um, you know, they deploy for relatively short periods, uh, sort of four months. Um, I'm sure it didn't feel short to them, um, but that meant that that um, the units could keep rotating forces through. Um, I think time will tell uh, whether they did too much. Um, and I think it's probably a bit too early, both for me to form. Um, those conclusions yet, um, and possibly for anyone to form those accurate conclusions yet, we might know for you know another decade or two. Mate, talk to me about the balance between the war in Afghanistan. It's a very political war. There was a lot of I know there's always politics involved in every war, but this one in particular, the you know it was directly linked, as you say, to John Howard being there, nine eleven, um, Australia wanting to support America. So there was a very big political element, but then. At the end of the day, the guys and girls on the front line have, have got a water fight. How's that balance been for you? How is the how have you found being able to wade through all that and and and, and disseminate that information and, and separate the the huge umbrella of the politics and the reasons we were there and and still tell the story of the of the guys on the front line? Yeah, I think the first um, challenge uh, is to just understand um, why government sent them there, and that's pretty clear from the documentation we have access to. Um, and generally, that's pretty straightforward. I think um, writing about Afghanistan is not as difficult in that sense as, say, what writing about Iraq would be. Uh, and, you know, the project that I'm part of, um, Iraq is one of the volumes uh, we're writing, but that's that's not my job, so I'm not across all the detail. Um, but it was politically contentious. Um, and certainly when Kevin Rudd became Prime Minister, uh, the Labor Party continued to support um, Afghanistan uh, and, and gradually withdrew our troops from Iraq. So there's not those kind of 
I guess, um, party politics that are, that are a part of it. Um, but really, I think at the end of the day, our official history project, and this probably goes a bit back to, you know, the, the predecessors that you mentioned earlier in that tradition of official history, it only needs enough of that political and I guess strategic um, level information to make sense of what was experienced on the ground and, and why things were attempted in the way they were. And that is where the majority of our focus um, is. It's, it's how things unfolded on the ground, um, why they unfolded the way they did, um, often assessing whether that was appropriate or not, and looking at the personal stories to the extent that we can within those events um, that we describe. So um, some of the chapters we write are all about policy, um, are all at the policy level, and we'll talk about departments in Canberra and, uh, and their interactions and the decisions that they take. Uh, and then other chapters are wholly about, and the majority of chapters are wholly about what was it, what was done on the ground and uh, and what it um, uh, what it meant for the people who experienced it and what it meant, I guess, more broadly for um, you know this dusty province in um, southern Afghanistan. You mentioned Iraq. One of the things that I found slightly disappointing is that the unpopularity of Iraq in some ways tarnished the good work that we were doing in Afghanistan, that those wars became lumped together. When uh, when we first set out to Afghanistan, it was obviously for a very noble purpose, but that seemed to get all wrapped up in the controversies around Iraq. Did you, did you find that in your investigations into the war? Did you find that Afghanistan and Iraq became inex- inescapably linked? Not... Not, I guess, as explicitly as that. Um, I think looking at polling data from the Afghanistan war, it increasingly becomes um, less supported. It's never really quite as contentious. I don't think it has the public level of hatred. Um, you know, there's not, there's not these um, masses of people out protesting against the war like there were for, for Iraq. I think undoubtedly uh, in many people's mind the two will be seen as one and the same. Um, but public support insofar as, you know, polling actually indicates um, levels of public support um, shows a slight decline over time. Um, but I think, uh, and I'd need to go back and check the data, but it only just dips below 50% sort of, um, in the period after I'm writing about, I think maybe 2010, 2011, something like that. Um, so it's, it's sort of really different. And then I think it goes back to a point you made earlier. For the most part, I don't think Australia really knew what was happening in Afghanistan. Um, it doesn't quite have the same scandal for the most part attached to it that, you know, Iraq did with questions of weapons of mass destruction and Saddam, um, you know, being all over, you know, once he's captured, being all over the news and um, and scandals and things. I mean, there's lots of unfortunate things and bad things that happen in Afghanistan for the coalition, but I don't think it's, um, I think it's genuinely seen as the good war and that was certainly how it was presented. It was a good war compared to the bad war of Iraq. Um, and this is probably an overgeneralisation, but uh, there tends to be, certainly in my experience, a bit more, a positive light shined on people's Afghanistan experience than their Iraq deployments because it sort of fits into that good war, bad war side of uh, sort of um, thing. In your research, mate, what were the elements that surprised you most 
about the Afghanistan war? Because as you said, you went into this like lots of members of the public, like me, like lots of people, really not having a great understanding of what we'd done over there. What were the elements that surprised you the most as you started to dig into it? Yeah, I guess the thing that still surprises me um, regularly is just how busy the Australian Defence Force was in Afghanistan or in supporting the war in Afghanistan. So, you know, that could be people uh, back in Canberra or in Townsville or wherever preparing to deploy or um, monitoring what was happening over there. But uh, it's a very busy time. Uh, these, uh, these people are, are, were rarely out of harm's way. Uh, and I just hadn't come to appreciate that uh, before I started on the project. Uh, and as I said, it still sort of surprises me. Uh, I read daily records of, you know, what's happening on that particular day and um, there's just so much going on. Um, it makes it hard to write about because you've got to figure out what to leave out because uh, obviously we can't include everything. The book would just be uh, way, way too big. Um, so, that yeah, I'd say that. It's given me a real insight into special forces that uh, that I didn't have previously, uh, and again, that comes with um, with a huge privilege because we're, we've got access to these records that are phenomenally interesting, uh, and access to people who will tell us their stories, and often we will be the first that they've told those stories to. And I hadn't really worked on special forces before, so it was, you know, that's been a real eye opener for me personally. How in general do those veterans look back on their time in Afghanistan? Oh, it's too varied to generalise. Um, a full mix of emotions, I think. There would be some of some would not look at it kindly, and others will see it as um, the defining experiences of their lives. Yeah, it's uh, it can be really. I keep using privilege because I think it really is a privilege talking to these people. Um, with the access that we have because they can feel comfortable to tell us their stories knowing that we've got security clearances to hear the things that might still be classified. But that that sort of takes a drain on some people and uh, I've done hundreds of interviews, um, not exaggerating, and uh, one word that comes up all the time is cathartic. It's really cathartic for these people to talk about their experiences. Uh, It could be really quite emotional. Um, you know, it could be a two-hour, um, very deeply emotional experience for them and also for me and uh, my colleagues who do this. Um, that's all, I guess, part of it. And, and the challenge then for us is trying to incorporate not all of those perspectives because we can't, um, but enough of those perspectives that when anyone of any rank picks up a book uh, picks up one of our official histories and reads it, they can at least see some of their own experience in there, even if they're never named, even if their subunit is never named. And if we can do that, then I think the history will have achieved some of its objectives. Looking back on it, what does Afghanistan mean for the ADF, the, the achievements, the losses? How has the ADF come through the Afghanistan experience and how has it changed? Uh, it's a very different Australian Defence Force now than it was before Afghanistan. Um, you know, before Afghanistan, I mean, clearly we'd, we'd recently come out of, of Interfet, that, that experience in East Timor. Um, but before Interfet, it was largely the, the era of peace and um, deploying small numbers of people on, on United Nations or other peacekeeping missions around the world. 
East Timor was a big experience for many, but Afghanistan was a combat experience for the people who deployed there. And um, there was real fighting. Um, people were being shot and maimed and they were killing people and they were um, dealing with the stresses of the things that um, many of them relished the opportunity to be tested in a way that, um, you know, a couple of generations previously hadn't really had the opportunity. In terms of what it means for the ADF, then you've got a whole swathe of people who have combat experience and that starts to spread throughout units uh, and that experience spreads throughout the ranks. Um, but it's now quite some time since, I mean, we still have troops in Afghanistan, but they're doing a different role and certainly in much smaller numbers. But over time, those people, like Vietnam veterans, um, leave the Defence Force and so the experience often goes with them. Um, I'm struck by um, how many people I um, track down for targeted interviews. You know, I know I need to speak to someone about this event and how many of them have gotten out and are pursuing other um, career paths. So the extent to which... Um, it's still felt in the ADF today. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know that. Um, I think um, there's a there's a danger, and I mean, I, I'm not a current um, analyst of defence matters, but there's a danger of applying the Afghan experience to sort of a, taking a, a cookie cutter approach and going, well, this is how war is going to be fought, and this is how counterinsurgency is going to be waged um because if we look at our what we did in afghanistan you know we didn't deploy the the strength of the australian defense force to one location you know we sent bits and pieces to to different parts of afghanistan we sent gunners to work with the the british in helmand province but we didn't send gunners to work you know as part of um an australian task force in uruzgan province we didn't send australian fast jets to support australian forces in Rizgan province, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's not like we just sort of pick up a mini version of the Australian Defence Force and drop it in an area and then go, hey, um, fill your boots, um, you all get better at working together. Um, and there's a danger that we would um, we would see that as, well, this is how we fight wars and um, let's focus everything on that. Now, I don't think, I'm, I'm not saying that that's happened. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, but there's... You know, Afghanistan provides a lot of lessons, but also provides a lot of lessons in how probably not to do things. Once people have had the opportunity to read the official history that you're writing and they've had a chance to look back on the war in Afghanistan, how would you like the Australian public to remember what happened in Afghanistan during that war? I think how I'd like any Australian to ever engage with history, and that's to take a critical approach to it. Um, no, there's, you know, not everything that happened there was good. Um, and not everything that happened had enduring effects. Some of it was just something they did and um, it might have had a negative consequence even though it looked really positive at the time. Um, so just approaching it with an open eye and not, not glorifying everything, and, and that's not to downplay the efforts of people. And we should rightly um, be thankful to the people, for the people who, who deployed and, and did these things. But I guess it's it's not to glorify them, and we always have um, run that risk, um, and I think often unsuccessfully in Australia, that we aren't prepared to be critical 
um, of what our soldiers have done. And if anyone has a close reading of any of the official histories to date, they'll know that that's not the case. Um, they are critical, even if it's in veiled language. Um, you know, everyone's trying their hardest to capture a sense of what it was like there, um, both good and bad. Is that the role of you as an official historian, that the so that people sitting in their lounge rooms at home get an understanding for what it was like to strap the boots on and carry a rifle in Afghanistan? Um, partly. I think that was more the role that Charles Bean took on board. Um, for me, it's mostly so that people in their lounge rooms can understand what our forces were doing and why. Um, the feeling of what it was like to strap on the boots and um, go out to the dashed, I think it's probably better served to a large extent by soldier memoirs and documentaries and things like that um, and by other books that will follow ours uh, and other books that already exist. Um, if that's what people are hoping to get from my book, they will, um, I think, be pretty disappointed. Um, what they will get is an understanding of how the ADF and its various elements tried to do their job um, either successfully or unsuccessfully. Uh, and I think that's the role of the official historian. It's it's documenting um, what happened and why, um, you know, and I, I'm covering six years of war in 300,000 words. Um, there's not a lot of words you can expend on, um, on telling what happened. Um, it's hard enough just to get down the, the key events uh, and unpick them as best we can than um, going into all that other detail. Um, maybe that's a book I'll write another another time, but, um, yeah, I don't think that's the book. But well, certainly not the book I'm trying to write now. Well, I think um, I think given the uh, the foundation of work that you're doing for the official history, you'll have lots of scope for uh, interesting works in the future, mate, and I'll look out for those. The important question is when are we going to see it? When are we going to be able to read the official history? Yeah, I, um, I don't really know. Um, there is a deadline, but I don't like to remind myself of it because I, uh, it, it just seems um, too difficult to reach. It was a five-year project to begin with, um, five years to, uh, for six historians to write six big books. Um, that's blown out a bit. Uh, one of the books is completed and undergoing the clearance process at the moment, um, but the other five are still ongoing. Uh, I've written about a third of mine um, but used about half the words, so um, I need to start either writing with a bit more clarity and brevity or um, or it's going to be a massive book. I, I don't know. Um, maybe we need a better writer. But uh, in all seriousness, I, I think I'm probably uh, a good couple of years away from producing um, a pretty solid draft of the manuscript and then it will have to go through a, a clearance process which turns it from the classified book it is at the moment into an unclassified book that will be published um, by a commercial publisher and available in all good bookshops. Um, and that'll, that'll, you know, that'll largely be out of my hands. So uh, I'd say three or four years probably for my volume to come out. Uh, it's also the second last chronologically in the series. So, um, you know, they'll have to fall out in a certain order. But uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, the first volume of the official history, which is on Interfet, um, you know, will will come out soonish. I don't have a date for it, but um, that's been written by the official historian, so the sixth Charles Bean.
Um, his name's Craig Stockings, and uh, he's my boss, uh, and he wrote that first volume. Well, it's very exciting, and I know there's a lot of people listening to this who will be waiting with bated breath for that to come out. So, uh, mate, it's it's wonderful work that you're doing in a tradition of some um, you know wonderful historians. So, thank you for taking the time to come and discuss it with us. Thank you for the great work you're doing, and uh, I'm sure I speak for everyone when I say I'm looking forward to reading it, <laughs> and I'm sure many other people are as well. Yeah, thanks. Can I just give a quick shout out? If you've got uh, veterans listening to this, if they want to get in touch with us, they'll find um, the Official History Project through the Australian War Memorial website. Please get in touch if you've got stories to tell. Um, If we can, um, we will listen and we will try to incorporate those either into the historical record or um, into the official histories themselves. Fantastic, mate. It's great work you're doing and um, thanks for taking the time to share it with us. Cheers, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.